Welcome to the Hellraiser Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Hellraiser Podcast. My name's Peter, I'm here with Phil. Hello. Hi. Hello. And today we're going to be talking all about Hellraiser 6, which is just called Hellraiser Hellseeker. Hellseeker. So we're still reeling a bit from our adventures at Comic-Con, speaking to the Hellraiser people, which was very exciting. It was amazing. But now we're getting back into the movies, and we're cracking on with Hellraiser Hellseeker, which came out in 2002, straight to video and DVD. Now that's that's real hell, isn't it? We, we, were, we were talking to Ashley Lawrence, <laughs> and having a lovely time chatting to her, and now we're watching Hellseeker. Yeah. <laughs> speaking of Ashley Lawrence... Hey, she's in this film. She is in this film. Yeah. The credits come up and she's the second billing, so you think she's going to be in this film a lot. The credits end, she's in a car with her husband, and then two minutes later, she dies. Now that isn't a spoiler warning, because that happens in literally the first five minutes of the whole film. Mm. But however, there will be spoilers during this podcast if it wasn't already spoiled for you by our interview last week. Sorry about that. So if you haven't seen the film yet, then we're warning you that we're going to spoil it, as much as we spoiled Hellraiser Inferno. Yes. Right, so we begin with this car crash involving Kirsty Cotton, who is now married to a man called Trevor, and Trevor's the driver. And the car crashes, Trevor manages to get out, and Kirsty drowns. Yes, it crashes into a river. Yes, I should, should say that really, yeah, otherwise it wouldn't make any sense if she drowned <laughs> in the car. Okay, so it crashes into a river, she drowns, he gets out. Yeah. Is it a river or a lake? <laughs> a body of water. A body of water. Okay. <laughs> and then, all of a sudden, Trevor wakes up after this ordeal, and quite literally, all hell breaks loose. Hmm. Hmm. So where should we begin in this conversation about this film, Phil? Well, first of all, it's really frustrating that all of a sudden Kirsty's dead. And as far as you're aware, watching it, she might not come back in the film. Yeah, so that is... That's a good way to annoy people straight off the bat. Yeah, think you, <laughs> might, you might all of a sudden think that the next hour and 20 minutes are going to be completely Ashley Lawrence free. Which is something we don't like. No, and they kind of are. I mean, she does come back in it, but not as much as we would have liked, which we did bring up with her and she said it was very nice that we people had said that yeah she was very pleased all you fans out there that everyone was annoyed that she wasn't <laughs> in this film much but she we weren't party to this obviously being people watching the film but she said you know she only wanted to do a cameo well um, she said she knew that's what it was from the start so yeah she was you know it wasn't like her part was cut down no she was um well it was never going to be Kirsty cotton was it apparently no but anyway, that's all stuff that she said to us, and we're going to remind you of that later on. We're going to play the little extract of the interview with her that was all about Hellseeker later on, just to remind you what her feelings are in the film. So we're going to talk through the film now. It's a very non-linear film. It sort of jumps around back and forth, so this conversation might do the same sort of thing. But Trevor wakes up, he's having these really bad headaches, and he's sort of hallucinating. He's not sure what's real and what's imaginary. And he's involved in the police investigation into Kirsty's disappearance because her body's not been found, they say. Yeah, so he, he obviously thought she was dead in the car, but um, she's disappeared. And then they say that the car was found empty, she wasn't in it, and there were no skid marks on the bridge that the car came off and things like that. So he's sort of being 
implicated with her murder, which is not what he wanted. No, it's not ideal. And at the moment, his character, he seems to be a nice, reasonable chap. We don't know anything about him, but he seems all right. He just seems having a really bad time. Yeah, because they they crashed the car because they were kissing, didn't they? That's true. They were having a lovely kiss, and um, it's not what you do when you're driving a car, is it? No, um... he does take his eyes off the road for quite a while. (laughs) We're not saying that he deserves it because of that. No, but, um, you know, safe driving, guys. Yeah. And then all these women in his life imply that they have sex with him. Yeah, he, he's in the hospital and he then goes to his job. And bear in mind, I don't know, if you haven't seen this film, it's hard to explain how kind of disjointed it feels and um, strange, which I believe is what they were going for. Mm. So he goes to work and it's like, does he know the people there? Can he remember them? Can he remember his colleagues or can he not? He's in this little cubicle... It's all a little bit weird. He's got a, a best mate who works in the cubicle next door. Yep. And this boss called Gwen, who then all of a sudden launches herself on him and implies that they have a sexual relationship, which he seems to know nothing about. Yeah, she she pushes him up against the vending machine. Also mixed in with this confusion of what's going on and who's who. Um, we've had a couple of slightly supernatural moments here with the he was trying to get something out of the vending machine and a bloody hand slammed against the glass and uh, he had a vision of having his brain cut into in some kind of weird yeah. hospital. Yeah, right at the beginning there's sort of a, a brain surgery scene that's reminiscent from the, of the one in Hellraiser 2 mm. where there's a surgeon cutting open a bit of his skull and sticking little pins into his brain which is very suggestive of Pinhead and sort of saying we're going to be triggering memories in this the, because the parts of the brain that unlock pleasure and pain are very close to each other. It doesn't really. I'm not really sure what's happening in that scene. No. But he's, he's, they, they seem to be doing it as an experiment, a procedure, to try and unlock memories, is what they say. Yeah. But it's yeah. never mentioned again. Nope, nope, nothing ever comes of it. Because it is in a kind of weird dark room, isn't it? It's mm. not like in a nice hospital surgery thing. I don't know. It no. looks quite odd. Um, but anyway, so he's got that going on. Um, his boss is getting off with him, yep. and he's a bit like, "Whoa!" There's a very, very heavy references to cameras in his workplace watching him. Yeah, uh, there's a couple of very explicit references to uh, the cameras mounted on the wall. The hills have eyes, Trev, mm-hmm. and the cameras are very noisy. Yeah, the cameras. They've decided to sort of really hammer it home to us a lot that the cameras um, are watching him by having them make a little sound like a. <laughs> it's uh, quite obtrusive. If I was actually working in that office, I'd yeah. be really annoyed. It would really distract you from oh your work. Oh, God, yeah. And then it turns out his camcorder at home makes the same noise. Yeah, even more so. Which is really annoying. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so he's being watched at work and everything is a bit sinister. He goes home. Yep. Um, his next door neighbour. Yeah, I think she's down the hall. But his sexy neighbour sexy neighbour sort of implies that she also has a sexual relationship with him I mean it's not implied it's oh no it's quite she's explicit. basically rubbing herself up and down the walls <laughs> trying to get into his house and have sex with him yeah he's a very desirable character this Trevor isn't he he is all and women he... seem to really want to be with him no disrespect to the actor but you know <laughs> what <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the third lady he's involved with 
his best mate who, who works next to him in the cubicle gives him a card of an acupuncturist and he goes over to see her. Her name is Sage and she does some acupuncture stuff on him and then later on she starts having sex with him as well. Yeah, they love it. They do. So this is Trevor then. We as an audience are told that there's all, there are all these women that are trying it on with him or implying they have done things with him before but he seems to be very oblivious of this which is very odd to watch really, isn't it? It is. It is odd to watch. And it's definitely what they're going for to make a puzzle. A puzzle, obviously. Mm. It's referenced quite a few times yeah. that the film is a puzzle, like the puzzle box. Mm -hmm. But, I don't know. I find it a little bit wearing um, to sort of watch someone in such confusion where things are sort of so obviously not what they seem to have to keep going through that. Yeah. Where you'll sort of walk into one room and it'll be a different room and then someone will be like, hey, remember me? And he's like, no, I don't remember you. That was three weeks ago. What the? So, you know, that it, it's a difficult one because a lot of people really like that and, and get into it. But I I kind of think, okay, skip to the end now. I know this is not real. Yeah. I know this is, I don't know what this is, but something is not right here. Yeah, let's, let's find out what's going on. Mm. And then there is the puzzle box because another reference to cameras is Trevor likes to film everything, not only sexual encounters but also he's got lots of footage of him and Kirsty just sort of going through the day-to-day -day stuff and one of these videos he watches is an anniversary and he gives her this puzzle box as a gift and yeah she seems to not be very impressed with that as you would be and then it we're going to be jumping around here in terms of when these things are actually shown in the film we're just going to go through the story really I think I think that's the best way of doing it because it turns out that Trevor got this box from a strange shadowy merchant figure in an old big old empty warehouse mm. who's played by Doug Bradley as well by the excellent Doug Bradley so it sort of implies that it's kind of pinhead orchestrating things mm -hmm. maybe mm -hmm. which is implied later on actually but we'll get to that in a moment so he gets this box he gives it to Kirsty, and that's all we find out really and she's not very impressed and then this is one of those non-linear moments where we then all of a sudden flip to something else. We don't find out what happens until later on. And then Gwen, the boss, turns up at his house and they end up on a chair doing sexy things in front of a video camera. And then he gets freaked out and gets up and forces her to leave. But then on the TV screen, which has been set up with the video camera so they can see themselves, they're still there having sex. Yeah. And that's quite a fun moment. It is quite good. He passes good. his hand through the in front of the camera and his hand's there, but he's there in the... I mean, that's a nice little trick moment that's, mm. that's really fun, that, you know, there's the empty chair, but on the screen they're writhing around, and then he passes his hand in front of the camera, and the hand passes in front of him and her. That's quite, quite yeah, good. Yeah, I like that. And then, all of a sudden, on the screen, she's being killed. Yeah. Suffocated with a plastic bag mm. by two Cenobites, who we only get a brief glimpse of here. A very brief glimpse. Until later on, when we get another brief glimpse of them, and that's it. Yeah. So there are some new Cenobites in this film. We're going to talk about those later on, though. Because there's no point mentioning them here because you don't really see them properly. Mm, so the plot is thickening here. Yeah, and then it turns out that Gwen did really die a while ago. Mm. And then there's a weird moment where the sexy neighbour, whose name is Tawny, I believe, she also comes over to his place, starts having sex with him, and then ends up dead. Yep. And then he gets freaked out. Then all of a sudden she's not there anymore. He goes over to her place and she hasn't got a clue what he's talking about. 
Yeah, she's at home with her boyfriend. So there's a lot of this jumbled up stuff going on. And every now and again, we get a brief glimpse of Pinhead. He turns up in a mirror. And in the acupuncture room, he comes out of a poster on the wall of pinpoints on the body where pins should be stuck. And that's quite good. I like that bit. Mm -hmm. And then he shoves a big spike, takes one of his pins out, becomes a massive spike, and then he shoves it through Trevor's neck. Yeah, which is quite cool, actually. I quite like that bit. That's good. And then he, but then of course he disappears, he's gone and everything's fine again. Yeah. And Trevor's just freaking out. And amongst all this, we've got lots of water imagery. Like the hand in the vending machine is surrounded by water. Trevor all of a sudden starts coughing up water at one point and a big eel comes out of his mouth. Yeah. That's pretty good, that bit. It is. There's a slight CGI issue when it first comes out of his mouth and then there's a nice eel flapping around on the floor, which is pretty cool. We always like a nice eel. (laughs) So I guess what we've got here is um, the story is moving around lots of different places. There's a mystery to be solved here. There are a lot of scenes that are quite similar where people are kind of going, well, I don't know what's going on, Mm -hmm. you know, and things are not being revealed much. And, you know, is this the time to say now that this film is pretty similar to another Hellraiser film? Yeah, the one that we talked about very recently on the podcast, Hellraiser Inferno. Yeah, there there are a lot of similarities between the two we'll go through them later on actually because let's just get to the end of this mm. and just talk about the end of the film and then we can go back and go through it in detail yeah so this is your last spoiler warning for this one because we're going to do the twist now which is kind of similar to the twist in the last one but anyway we'll get there in a moment so trevor's friend turns up in an alleyway and says hey don't you remember we were going to kill Kirsty and then have all her money but you went back on that and crashed that car, so I'm going to kill myself. And he shoots himself in the head. And then Trevor's like, what's going on? And eventually, the police say that a body has been recovered, and it's in the morgue. So Trevor goes to the morgue to see this, and then Pinhead turns up and gives the big reveal, which is, Trevor got the box from the merchant, gave it to Kirsty to open. Not sure why. That's not really gone into, is it? It isn't. It's... um. If you're just watching the film at face value, I don't believe it's really stated in the film why he gives her the box. No. Other than to freak her out? I don't know. Does right. he or know maybe, about Or maybe he knows about the box, the, the, the fact that it can open doors to heaven or hell, or maybe he wants to open it for himself to see what it's like. That's not gone into either. It's not gone into why he gets the box. Weirdly, but, when I watched the film, I thought that she had told him about her past experiences with the Cenobites and he'd just kind of written it off as mm. and then he found this box and he gave it to her to screw her over to maybe make her upset I don't know why I thought that That's just but then there's <laughs> another reason I mean he gets a card that says all problems solved on it that leads him to the merchant who then says hey this will help you this will solve all your problems Ooh. but anyway Kirsty opens the box Pinhead turns up and sort of says ah oh, it's you again excellent and he kind of implies that he orchestrated this so she would get the box. Is that said or is that in the deleted scene we watched? I can't quite remember. Um, no, because he says something like the box is a door. You opened it once opened a long time it, ago. And it won't shut until no. I get what I want. And what I want is you, he says. Hmm. Which is very, ooh. Yeah. And then she says, hang on, I've got a better plan. I will give you five souls in exchange for mine. And he To which says, he immediately goes, yeah, all right. Yeah, even though he just said, what I want is you. I will not rest till I get you. Yeah. How about this instead? Yep, okay. So then, in the story of the film, Kirsty goes out and she murders 
the three women that Trevor's been having an affair with. She murders the friend who he conspired with to kill her. And then it's revealed that in the car, just before the car crash, she shot Trevor in the head at point-blank range and then afterwards told the police that he'd shot himself. So this is where you you think it's a little bit difficult to, to really go with this motivational stuff. Here yeah. Because I know that a lot of people say, well, it's, but it's a dream, it's a this, it's a mm-hmm. that. But I'm just like, I don't... We're supposed to believe in the film that that is real, that Kirsty yeah. did actually make the deal with Pinhead. And I don't think she would have opened the box. I don't think she would have touched the box. No. I don't think she would have made a deal with Pinhead to murder some other people. No, I mean, the Kirsty that we meet in Hellraiser 1 and 2, she's not a murderer. That's pretty cold-blooded as well. Yeah, very well, well these, she, she, these women were having sex with her husband, but that's not a good enough reason to murder them. And torture them, as, yeah, it, was, yeah, as it was stated in the film. Although that when he says it was torture and murder, that's in sort of a, a reality that never really happened because it's sort of in Trevor's hell. Yeah, so, so that might not be true. But so that, still. But still, they, they were still shot. Yeah. <laughs> like how it's somehow worse, you know. No, it's, yeah. not, it's not bad enough that she's shot no. five people. It still definitely implies that Kirsty killed five people to give them to Pinhead. It's never really explained how the souls then went to Pinhead. I mean, when she shot them, did she have the box with her and she brought Pinhead back to get them or did she just leave them and because of the deal, Pinhead could get their souls? Yes, the ins and outs of this contract are not really discussed. No. Um, And it's a tricky one because I really like this scene between him and her, Mm. Pinhead um, and Kirsty, because... I just like seeing them on on the screen. Yeah. But what they're saying is not necessarily making too much sense. And uh, but the lines are good because of this. I believe this is some that Doug Bradley contributed to. So I believe, yeah. Apparently, the director said to him he could add some lines and flesh out the backstory and change it if he wanted to. And so I like what he's saying, but I think that the film itself is kind of doing him a bit of a disservice in that it's not the whole concept of the film doesn't quite make sense really mm. to me. That's just my opinion. No. Well, before we go any further, let's just remind everyone what Ashley Lawrence had to say about working on Hellseeker. Uh, it's just a, literally a minute and a half of the interview we had with her, but here's what she said. Okay, so can we talk about Hellraiser 6? Sure. Hellseeker. Um, what was your first involvement in that project? Um, three days before they started filming, Doug Bradley called me at home and said, there's a character in this script that's named Kirsty." And I talked to the director about you doing a cameo. Would you want to do that? They'd have to rewrite it some. And I thought it'd be really cool to go work with Doug again. So when I went out there, um, there wasn't really a way in the overview to to rewrite Kirsty because she just wouldn't behave like that. So they made it a dream. I'm making little quotes with my hands. Um, They made it a dream to sort of justify the fact that she would never in a zillion years have acted that way. Okay, so it wasn't going to be Kirsty Cotton originally in the script then? No. Oh, wow. So what was your reaction when you found out how little screen time you'd have on on screen, really, in the film? Oh, um, it wasn't a problem because I knew that it was a cameo. And I just had really wanted to work with Doug again. And I had spoken with the director over the phone, who was a DP, so I knew it would be shot well. It was, it was mostly just a hoot. 
Because when, when fans found out you were coming back, everyone got very, very excited. And I think some were a little disappointed you weren't in it as much as they would have liked. Oh, yeah. No, I would have been... That, I, I heard that too, which was really wonderful that they would have felt that way. But I... I, I felt like if it was actually Kirsty, that that would have been something different. But because this was, again, finger quotes, a dream, that it was just like a couple days in Canada. So there we go. That's what Ashley Lawrence had to say about it. Lovely, lovely Ashley Lawrence. Mm-hmm. So she is under the impression that it's not the same Kirsty at all. And she sort of says the whole thing is a dream. But if you are watching the film with face value, it does imply that the whole Kirsty making the bargain and doing the murders is set in the real world yeah yeah in that it maybe the way it's represented in this film is not the way it happened mm. but the base fact is that she did speak to pinhead and she did make a deal with him to give him souls yeah but they do say because in the very last scene of the film is her talking to the detective she's framing trevor for these murders that have happened with this gun and they're saying we're going to check the gun if it matches the others then we know that it was definitely him so they other the other murders have occurred with a gun Mm -hmm. and she must have done them that's the whole that's what they're saying yeah but it's interesting what ashley was saying about the fact that it wasn't supposed to be her originally it was just a character called kirsty um so and that ties in with the fact they wouldn't she wouldn't act like that but they changed it so she could be in it to appeal to fans, I guess, and they just changed the name and they added that extra scene about Pinhead talking to her. But it still doesn't really explain why she would do these things. The Kirsty that we know from the first two films would not murder people, I don't think. No, exactly, and she's fully aware of that, but, um, you know, they wanted the film to work and they wanted yeah. her in it and they wanted Doug Bradley in it and everything, so it's, uh, it is what it is. It's an, and it's an interesting story. It is. It's it's another one a bit like, you know, I mean, it is like Inferno. In All right, now we've done the spoiler. Let's talk about how like Inferno it is. I mean, it's the same, isn't it? It's very similar to Inferno. They, again, it's a, a main character who, near the beginning of the film, gets dragged into hell and the rest of the film doesn't really exist. It's all in his hell. There's some very similar scenes, like the police station scene. There's a bit where something weird is happening in there that's not really real. That was happening in Inferno. There's a lot in this one as well of, um, and I think it goes too far in this film, of the camera just focusing on someone who's completely irrelevant to the plot in a kind of mm. creepy way or just looking at something that doesn't matter. And, you know, yeah. to kind of create that unsettling vibe, which they did in Inferno a bit. And, um, yeah, I think it's, it gets a little bit silly yeah. in this one. It's like a man sitting on the bus and they're like, oh, man on bus, look at him. <laughs> Whoa. It's not yeah. relevant. <laughs> <laughs> no, and there's a weird faceless character stalking him, which is stalking like the... the faceless killer in Inferno. Yes, yes. So there's, yeah, there's huge similarities. Um, but mm. I think, you know, this one, the little bit, the fact that this one's got Pinhead in it properly, at least. Yeah, at least, yeah, at least Pinhead is part of the story in this one. I mean, that does elevate it, um, in my opinion, a lot. Oh, yeah. What, over Inferno? Yeah, yes, absolutely. Definitely. Because you, at least you get to enjoy a couple of scenes with Pinhead in this one. And there's a reason for him being there. Yes, there is. Um, but again, this film, for me, really strikes at the, the heart of the Cenobites. Sort of, It's not what I think that they do. I just don't think that they set up these big, complicated... No, they've got this, another big, elaborate hell where there's a whole world created just for this one person. 
Yeah, and I mean, you know, it'll be interesting to explore through the comics and things like that when we get to those. Yeah, what occurs in them? But at the moment, we're just watching it, you know, at face value. And I, I guess the creatures that we saw in the first film and the second film didn't come across to me as the kind of people who would stage this kind of elaborate thing to to torment someone in that way. No, and like we said in the Inferno podcast, you've got Frank who's just given a room, but his hell is a room where these women are in, and that's it. He didn't get a whole universe. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange one. I mean, I like it, and I, I can see what they're going for. You know, they want... They're trying to make the films complicated and they're trying to make them, as they always say, puzzles, Mm -hmm. puzzle boxes and many layers and, and, you know, have uh, Pinhead be the trickster, you know, who who manipulates people and, you know, strikes to the heart of them. But I don't know. It doesn't quite work for me. No. And one thing where I do think this film falls down is it creates new Cenobites and barely uses them. They're hardly in it. Yeah, and what's that about? Because they must have spent a good bit of money on those Cenobites. Yeah, and, and they're quite good as well. The designs are quite good. If you but see, how do you know? Well, because well, I've <laughs> seen photos and I've seen you know, models and figures of them. That's the only reason I know they're good, because in the film you barely see them. Mm, it's, that's a very strange decision, because know. You, know, you spend that money on them. And I would after watching this film, I would go, oh, okay, they must have looked bad. Hmm. You know, but that's clearly not the case. So what, why not? Why not know. show them? But let's talk about them just just for fun. There hmm. are three new Cenobites in this film, mm-hmm. and their names are Bound, Stitch, and the Surgeon. Mm. So Bound is a big fat woman whose head's bound up in barbed wire. I think again, not really sure because you can't see her very well. At least I think it's barbed wire, but that could just be thinking about Barbie from number three. And anyway, she's, her head is bound in some kind of metal something. Stitch is that little blue a- alien, isn't it, with the three fingers? Yeah, who finds that girl in Hawaii and befriends her. Yeah. Oh, no, hang on. Oh, wait no. a minute. Stitch is another woman, I believe, whose head is, like, just stitched up. <laughs> That's kind of it. But she looks good, though. Her head's kind of sewn together. Mm-hmm. As if it's been pulled apart and then sewn together again. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the surgeon, who does look very cool when you see him, really. He's wearing some kind of a medical head brace, and his the metal comes over his eyes, and his mouth's pulled apart a bit like the chatterer, and he looks really horrible. Hmm. And I wish we'd see more of him in this film, but you barely glimpse any of them. Hmm. So that's them. We can't really talk about them much, because you don't really see them. And again, they're just sort of Pinhead's minions. They just do his dirty work. They seem to... Well, in the film, they, it implies they're killing the people, but really we find out later it was Kirsty who killed them, so that they don't even do that. <laughs> <laughs> they're just kind of there to populate Trevor's hell. So that's a shame. that They, they could have been used more. Yeah, it is a shame. Um, but there you go. <laughs> we'll tear your ears apart. And one thing we haven't mentioned is... This whole, the water symbolism and the eel and things like that, they're there because they're things that actually happened to Trevor once he was dead. So at the very end of the film, when we see dead Trevor by the side of the river, they pull out an eel from his mouth. Mm -hmm. So there was an eel there. He did drown. That's why he was coughing up water earlier on. So that's pretty interesting. And the fact that the coroner who's talking to him and being nice to him in his hell, she is a lovely, nice doctor who helps him. Yeah. So now this is implying, is it, that things that happen in the real world once you're dead 
can sort of infiltrate into your hell. Is that what it's saying? It must be. Yeah, it certainly seems to be that um, basically some of this stuff that's happening once his corpse is there on the ground, mm. you know, is, um, yeah, filtering down into his hell uh, because many of the characters who are in his hell are there yeah. in real life. Uh, the detective. Yep, he's there as well. Minus his evil partner. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about him. Well. Right, so this is the epitome of good cop, bad cop. That's what they were going for. You never see these two together in the film, the two police detective partners, until at the end when it turns out that it's quite literally good cop, bad cop is the same person and one of their heads is joined to the other one's body and they're sort of the same person with a weird attached head, a bit like the Johnny Knoxville in Men in Black 2. Yeah. I, I, maybe they just... You know, like you can get a computer file and just change it slightly. Maybe they just <laughs> got that effect from Men in Black 2 really cheap. I'm not sure they it. did because it doesn't quite look as good. <laughs> the fleshy tube that joins the two heads together at the end of this film is, is a bit... The CGI is not quite there yet. Yeah, it's a strange decision. Um, I think in the original script, he was supposed to be... The partner's head, the partner's face was on the back of his head. And that might have made more sense. A bit like Voldemort in the first Harry Potter film. Mm. But who knows? The things were decided for a reason. In fact, speaking of the original script, I just want to bring out one thing. In the original original script, Kirsty was pregnant. And at the beginning of the film, she's travelling along in the car and she starts going down on Trevor. And that's what causes the car to crash. <gasps> no <laughs> just thought I'd throw that in there. <laughs> um, I'm so glad they didn't do that. Whoa. Because that would have been silly. Crikey. Anyway, that was a bit of a tangent. Yeah, and uh, speaking of stuff that was cut out, the um, scene between Pinhead and Kirsty yeah. had a lot of lines cut out, which is a real shame because we've seen that scene and some of the lines that are in there are really good. And I believe that they cut them out because they didn't want to alienate people who hadn't seen the first films. Yeah, that's which what they said. Which is just complete nonsense no, because go nobody's on... watching this film if they haven't seen the other ones. Well, no, I know. Do go on YouTube and, and just look up Hellraiser, Hellseeker, deleted scene or alternate scene, and it's it's there, it's, and it's really interesting. But they do go into detail talking about Frank and Julia, and and that's great. I mean, I love that. I wish they had kept that in. Absolutely. And there's a couple of lines in it that I really think make more sense in this film. They're not mm. even referencing sort of Hellraiser 1. They're just sort of, you know, they just make it make a bit more sense that she opens the box and then Pinhead appears, you know. Hmm. This is Ashley Lawrence. You're listening to the Hellraiser podcast. So let's talk about Trevor's character briefly for a moment, because we spend the whole film with him thinking he's this poor guy who doesn't know what's going on. And is it real? Is it not? He didn't kill these people, but he seems to be there. He's being implicated in the crimes. And then we find out at the end of the film that he was a complete asshole. Basically, he was cheating on his wife with three different people. He was planning on killing her with his friend. And that sort of makes us think completely differently about his character, which I suppose in, in some ways is a good thing, because you think, oh, we thought it was one thing, but he's really another. But then when you look back on it, you think, I don't know, I think it's a bit annoying that you invested emotion in him when he was just a dick. Again, for me, it's, it's again, it's just a bit too moral. I don't understand how morals keep creeping into the Hellraiser world. Like, yeah. you know, in the first film... They're all, you know, Frank and Julia, everybody's kind of, you know, they're having this uh, relationship and all that kind of thing. But the, hell, the, the Cenobites are 
they don't care about this. No. They care about you, the flesh, the pain, the pleasure, what they can get out of you. And the moral centre of that film is Kirsty, and she manages to win without beating morals down your throat. She does manage to win, and that's, and that's you get that from the film. Yeah, absolutely. And this one, I know in this one it's not quite a sort of pinhead is the person giving the moral lecture. No. But it's still very heavily sort of like, well, you know, cheating on people and, um, you know, doing this kind of thing of trying to kill your wife and stuff like that is obviously wrong. But it, it's very sort of strange to have it here in this in this film kind of. And it's, um, and it's weird that you're, you're kind of on Kirsty's side at, at the end of the film. But then you suddenly think, but hang on, she killed all these people. Well, that's what I mean. The morals are just a bit bizarre in it. Because you want to be on Kirsty's side. Well, you're on her side for the whole film because you think she's dead. And you think it's such a shame. And also because you you know that it's Ashley Lawrence. Mm. And she was this character that you loved from the, the other films. So when it's turned around and all of a sudden she's a murderer, that doesn't quite work either, I don't think. Because you her character completely changes right at the end. And we've talked about how her character wouldn't do this sort of thing. But when you're watching the film, you have to take all that in in literally a minute or so right at the end of the film yeah you don't get any time to sit with that revelation you know she gets the box back and you kind of get the sense that you know this is going to be the way that Pinhead's going to get mm. her in the future but that's it really I don't know she's a murderer <laughs> on that subject another thing I want to bring up which I was thinking about was in the early films especially the first one it's very explicit that you open the box and then you get taken away to hell. Like Frank in the first film opens the box, then he disappears. He's gone. The doorway to hell opens up, the Cenobites come, they take you away and then you have gone. Like in the hospital when Kirsty goes and they manage to get her out of there somehow, magically. So in this film, Kirsty has said she's going to give Pinhead souls. She then murders people, but their bodies are still there. They're found by the police. So is this film saying that when he says souls, it's literally just a spirit-like soul that goes to hell rather than your body. And your body stays on the earth, rotting as it were. Because that's what happens with Trevor as well. He's supposed to be in his hell, which he's been living throughout the film. But his dead body's there being taken away at the end in the real world. Yeah, but then, you know, you can always argue with a film like this. Well, is that bit at the end the real world? Or is it still part of his hell that's reflecting the real world? Yeah. You know, there's always those kind of get-out clauses. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but, um, but it's a good point because, yeah. And again, it's a point that really contradicts the whole thing of the Cenobites because they want your body, don't they? You know, they want yeah. you physically It's about your flesh, hell. isn't it? Yeah, exactly. That's the, the central thing of the of the characters. So that I know that's nitpicking, but I that did bug me when I saw it because I thought, surely they want the whole thing not just a spirit of someone anyway let's move on okay one thing i do want to mention i know in the inferno podcast we mentioned the front cover of the dvd well let's mention it again here because again the front cover of the hellseeker dvd is just pinhead's head basically so the film again was being marketed as a pinhead film now at least a bit more justified this time well yes exactly (laughs) because he's part of the story this time as far as I'm aware, I don't think you can really get the film on DVD in the UK. I don't think it's been released Region 2. I mean, I'm, you have to correct me if I'm wrong about that, but I've got it twice. One's a Dutch import and one is a the US Region 1 import. But the Dutch import 
I just want to bring up this for a moment. The front cover of the DVD is exactly the same as the front cover of Inferno, but instead of orange, he's red. Mm-hmm. And that's a bit cheeky. But it's just basically the, the same... It's exactly the same cover with different title. Maybe it's a Dutch comment on how similar the films are. It could <laughs> well be, yeah. Slyly. Whereas the Region 1 is at least a different photograph. It's still bathed in red, but just Pinhead's head red, and that's it. Evil, deadly, immortal the tagline yeah nothing to do with the film is it really <laughs> no I mean, it's just talking about pinhead that's a what, <laughs> so anyway that's our little little rant for whole seeker about the marketing yeah it's a tricky one isn't it this film um again like inferno um they're kind of hard to review and talk about because they sort of go all over the place uh, but there are still good things in this film. There's lots of yes, little there things are. There are some there. really lovely moments in this film. So I wouldn't want anybody to yeah, think we're not that saying we were it's, no, we're not saying it's bad. Uh, you know, taking no, no, it down. It's not a bad film. No, I know we've we've been nitpicking and, and pointing out maybe negative aspects of it, but it is it's still quite an enjoyable film to watch. It's not a bad horror film, but it's not really a good Hellraiser film. No, I think that's fair enough to say. And for me personally as well, it, it has all the things that really annoy me in films in that I can't, I don't like films where they're trying to be complicated um, and make a many layered story, but it's kind of not, it's just a little bit confusing. I don't know how to explain it. There's a, there's a subtle way of making it complex without it just being ridiculous. Yeah, like Chris Nolan films. Yeah, I mean, I love his films like, you know, Inception and, and so on. Yeah. The complexity of that is so beautiful. Um, and but things like Memento and Absolutely, following. that's it. I mean, Memento is a great example of a film, you know, where a guy's trying to piece together what's going on. And this film here, uh, Hellseeker, is trying to go for the same sort of thing, but it's not sort of achieving it for me, really. Um, and I do find it quite wearing to watch people in confusion for the entire film. Because Trevor's character is just completely confused for the entire film. That's basically his main emotion. And if he's not confused, he's reeling from seeing a vision or a, having a really bad headache. Yeah. Which is just kind of a little bit wearing, I guess. But I can totally see what they were going for. And, you know, I think what they were going for is to be commended, I guess. I mean, I think yeah. they were going for something good. And I know there are lots of references to earlier Hellraiser films in the script and in the film. And some of them are nice, subtle references, but some of them are a little bit like, oh, that's just stolen from the other film. And it doesn't quite work as a as an homage. It just works as a st- steal, really. And the look of this one as well, just to, to move on to that, um, didn't really grab me. The colours, the way that it's sort of been desaturated, I don't know, it looks a bit kind of greyish. Mm. And um, I don't know, I kind of... Yeah, it could have been the DVD or the setup. <laughs> it could have been. It could have been. If any of you have seen this film um, and you're saying, no, it looks great, then uh, let us know. Yeah, it might be just our setup here. But um, yeah, didn't really grab me this one. Looked a bit looked a bit drab from uh, in certain places. Mm-hmm. So in general, we're saying sort of a similar thing to Inferno. It's an interesting idea, interesting story, but not quite pulled off to the best of its abilities, per se. Yeah. I would say so. Um, and I'm sure, you know, when you think about it, I'm sure they had a lot to contend with mm. in getting it made at yeah. all. Yeah, uh, yeah, because yeah. it was probably made for hardly any money. And I guess when you're trying to do a complicated story like this one, 
I'm sure they must have had, you know, suits from Miramax or whatever coming in Dimension and yeah. saying, what is this? I don't understand. You know, change this, change that. Mm -hmm. and I'm sure they must have had a lot of that. Um, it would be interesting to maybe talk to some of the people involved and just say, you know, did you yeah. get much interference? Definitely. Maybe we will. Maybe we will. Yeah. Right. Well, I think that's probably about it for this episode. Thank you all for listening once more. And our next episode will be all about the seventh film in the series, Hellraiser Deader. And if you think that we might have been a little negative about the, the three films we've recently been talking about, hopefully next time will be a bit different because I really like Deader. Mm. I think it's good fun. Yeah? Yeah. I'm so, not, not going to say whether I like it or I don't. <laughs> You're going to have to wait till next week. <laughs> so you all have to go out and watch Deader. That's your homework between now and the next podcast. And it's worth checking out. It really is worth a look. In the meantime, do keep all your feedback coming in. Our email address is hellraiserpodcast at hotmail.co.uk. And we have a Twitter feed at hellraisercast and a Facebook page. And you can go onto iTunes and leave us a review. Now, we've had a couple of people say they've left reviews on iTunes, but they haven't seemed to pop up. I'm not sh quite sure what's happened there. But if you have left a review on iTunes, do go back and check that it's there, because a couple of them don't seem to be there, mm. which is a real shame. But yeah, any any comments or questions or anything that you want to say, you know, send it to us or, or put it online. Mm. Uh, please spread the podcast around to anybody that you know and um, get, it, get it sort of moving online. That would be great, you know. Yeah, we're really pleased with how many people are downloading it so far so spread the word let's get let's get a huge following yeah yeah well all that's left for us to say now is thank you again so much for listening and we'll see you next time thanks phil thank you peter excellent see you all soon take care bye Cheers. bye mm -hmm.